pastors here at the church, I am so delighted to be with you this morning. Um, I'm going to make a diversion a little bit from what is the planned sequence of this morning. Um, Very often we have uh, a prayer time that takes place at the end of the message. I'd like to flip-flop that um, because I'd like to start off with a prayer time for some very particular reasons. Um, They have to do with a couple members of our fellowship and our congregation, um, as well as others who are here uh, that maybe are coming with a variety of needs. God does not ask us to come to God's house and leave all of our stuff at the door. Doesn't say come in and leave all of that stuff behind. It's an invitation to come in all of who we are. And so we bring that with us this morning. And I know that there are some here who bring with you some circumstances, some issues, relationships, concerns, hopes, and dreams that walk in with you into this place, into this sacred space. And your journey is sacred as well. And so I want to pause for a few moments and tell you of the journey of a couple of people in our congregation, and then invite you as well to bring what you have into this place so that we might offer up our prayers on behalf of uh, the world in which we live, our own journey, because God is faithful, and that's why we come together, is to be into God, move into God's presence. Um, some of you... Um, We'll be familiar with both of these names, but I'm not assuming that everyone is familiar with both of these names. Tim Caffarella is a member of our congregation, has been for decades. Um, he and his wife and Summer, you see them around often. Summer may be here this morning. I didn't see her earlier on. Um, but uh, Tim has been facing some very significant health issues. Uh, this weekend, he has gone on a trip to Arizona um, that is more just a break to get away, though he was in Arizona for quite some time trying to deal with some health issues leading up to a few weeks ago when he came back to church. And it was so wonderful to see that he was healthy enough to come for several Sundays in a row. Um, The good news in his journey is that he had an MRI uh, MRI that was trying to um, get a handle on a blood clot that had formed. The MRI, the good news was that it appears as if that MRI, that uh, blood clot has dissolved or dissipated or is small enough that they can't detect it, which is wonderful good news. Um, However, the prognosis of some of his other health issues has gotten worse, in particular um, issues related to his liver that cause very significant concerns as the next weeks unfold. And I know that Amy and Tim would be thrilled to know, and in fact they do know because I told them that we would take some time to pray for them in our services this morning. Um, And I would like, either now or in a few moments, I would like if there would be one person here who would be willing to represent Tim in our prayer time, um, in part symbolic, but also literally to stand in the gap on behalf of Tim and Tim's family. If you'd be open to coming and kneeling at the altar to my left, your right, and then after that's happened, there may be others that I would welcome and invite to um, pray around that individual as if that is around Tim. I want to tell you of another individual, Beryl Pagan. Many of you know Beryl. Beryl's been part of this fellowship, um, I believe, longer than Tim has, though Both of them have been here quite a few years. Beryl has, um, I think, just maybe surpassed Jim Swanson in the number of years served on the church board. Um, She has been such a faithful person in so many ways, and her life for the last 50-plus years has been every day a miracle of her pushing through the obstacles that said she never could push through and has over and over again. She's in the hospital this morning, has been for the last week, um, facing some very significant challenges herself. Um, For those of you who are students, you might know her as one of the librarians over on the campus library. For those of you who are Padre fans, you might recognize her from being a Padre fan and catching a foul ball in her Coke cup. I don't know how that happened, but that was an amazing barrel story that I'll never forget, nor the picture that made its way through Facebook. Um, After facing... So many incredible challenges. The fact that a nosebleed 
would be the issue that would cause such crisis in her life. Um, but it sent her to the hospital, um, a nosebleed that has come about as a result of some of the treatments that are necessary for her. But the doctors are at an impasse. My understanding, and this is an oversimplification, but uh, her lung capacity, which has been poor for so long, I think maybe some have said as low as 14% lung capacity, that they can't work on the nosebleed without affecting the breathing, and they can't do much with the breathing without resolving the nosebleed issue. And so this places them in a spot where they're at an impasse, where they've done what they know to do. She is currently in ICU, um, and uh, she continues to communicate and rule the room. Even though she can't speak because of the contraptions, she is still obviously the one in charge of the entire floor. Um, such a gem and a wonderful spirit, but she's at a place where um, she's struggling with the fear that comes with the unknown and trying to receive God's peace in the midst of that unknown. And if there would be somebody who feels a particular connection to Beryl this morning and would like to represent Beryl over here to my right, and then if there are others who would like to circle around um, lifting Beryl up to the throne, you certainly can do that from where you're seated, but I would love as a church to let this be part of what we do this morning. And then if there are others who this reminds you of your own needs, and you would like to step forward as an act of trust toward God to try and place those circumstances in God's hands and would like to kneel here at this bench or the benches on either wall or in the chairs that are behind the prayer area there or on the front row, I'm going to invite you to do that. So we're going to begin our prayer time with a few moments of silence. Hopefully there will be some who will come to these two sides here. I'll lead us in prayer. We'll close together in the Lord's Prayer. Please come at this time if you desire to. Thanks be to God. Father, we come into this prayer time because it feels as if our heart pulls us to prayer, but we also come at your invitation. Thank you for inviting us into your presence, for inviting us to pull back the curtain of our heart and to let you know our heart's cry, our plea, our hope our pain. So collectively we come as a church to you this morning grateful, unworthy, almost fearful to be this bold, but to step into your presence to tell you what our heart longs for, the things for which we ask. And so, Lord, as I place my hand on Archie, he represents Tim, Lord, and I lift Tim up to you. We lift his family up to you. We know so well that there is always a gap between what doctors and health professionals know and the skills that they have and what needs to be done. And so I ask that you fill that gap, that you step into that space 
that you do what only you can do. I pray that the way in which you have woven together his body would bring about the healing that was intended for the body to do. I pray that you touch his liver and the other organs that desperately need a healing, a restoration, a renewal. That's my heart's prayer, Lord. That is our way of offering to you our best understanding of Tim's future, our hope for Tim's future. Lord, we pray as well for Amy to sit in a place of caregiving, give her strength and wisdom, give her patience, Lord. Give her a sustenance that holds her steady through the unknown. And as she struggles with some of the things that uh, are a result of Tim's medication, his cognitive skills, the issues that he faces that only a person who's as close as Amy knows, Lord, please be with her. Help her in these moments. So, Lord, we lift up Tim and give him to you. Thank you as well, Lord, for Beryl. And as we pray around Debbie, who represents her this morning, we lift up Beryl. And, Father, in the midst of fear, you have been very clear in your instruction. You tell us to not let our hearts be troubled. You have promised that you would leave your peace, that you would give your peace, not like the world gives. And then you clearly say, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not fear. So this morning, Lord, will you remove all fear from Beryl? Will it um, be so evident that the spirit that obviously has resided in her all of these years The ways in which we have been blessed through her may in that same measure you pour out your blessing on her. Father, she is yours and has been, and we know that. And over the course of this week, Lord, she has asked that we join in prayer, that I join in prayer and have, that she return to normal for Beryl. (laughs) Beryl's normal. (laughs) Lord, that is the prayer this morning. I pray that as I have many times, that she might enjoy the things that she enjoys in life again. But Lord, I'll have to say this morning, I also offer a prayer that she will return to Beryl's best, whatever best is that you know. Her very best in your eyesight, in your hands, that we would trust you with her that Beryl would trust herself in your hands. So please, touch that incredible body that has been your sanctuary and your temple all these years. Lord, it may find itself difficult to hold her indomitable spirit and your spirit within her, but we pray for that sanctuary that it might sustain her for as long as you want it to, And Lord, sustain us, Lisa, all of our family members. Lord, please be with them and give them strength in these hours as well. We praise you and thank you. So Lord, as we bring as well all of the petitions that we have this morning, the circumstances that are represented by all of the lives here, will you please move into our life in the same fashion, filling us with your Spirit, touching bodies that are affected by all of the things around us. In some ways, it's a miracle that life continues with all the things that are around, and yet it seems so powerful that life pushes forward. Help us in the journey that you have given to each one of us to be faithful to you. And to that end, Lord, we pray as your disciples have been praying for centuries. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Thank you, church. As these are making their way back to their seat, I want to tell you of a wonderful moment for me this past week, and it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you. Um, I had the privilege, as some of you know, this last week of going to Kansas City and working with 16 individuals who are um, eventually making their way to the mission field in an assessment process that spans several days. Wonderful privilege to be part of their lives and um, watch the journey unfold as God continues to draw amazing people into the work of the kingdom around the globe. Um, Two of the women who helped coordinate so many of the logistics for this very complicated event that draws people from so many different places into this one location and coordinates all kinds of personnel to get things done. One of those individuals is Courtney, who um, used to attend this place during several of her years as a student. She's in seminary now, and her job has taken her into global mission headquarters for the denomination of which this church is a part. And it was such a privilege to hear her introduce me to someone else as her pastor and this church as her church. She spoke so highly of this place, and it's because of you. I then had the other person, Jenna, who came up to me, who is in her last year of seminary. She carries a particular role within the missionary development work at uh, the place that's sometimes referred to as headquarters. And she came up to me. She said, I just want to thank you. Well, it was a thanks that didn't belong to me at all. She said, "Um, my parents have left the church in which I grew up. They came down to San Diego because I was involved in a workshop on the campus, and on Sunday morning I was tied up with the workshop, and they came to your church. And after church, it was all they could talk about, about how warm and kind and welcoming and wonderful the church was, and they are just hoping that they can find a church that's like the one that's in San Diego that they attended. I know we don't always get it right. I know we miss cue on occasions. But when it works well, I want you to know that it works well. And it had nothing to do with me, it's you. And so as we strive to be more and more like the character of Christ, please know that people notice. It changes their journey. It makes a difference in their life. And let's try and not miss very often, but find ourselves more and more being that kind of church that shows God's love to other people. Thank you for striving for that, and I wanted you to know that the thanks belong to you. Um, We have uh, started a journey into this um, book of Revelation. Last week, this week, and next week, not a long span, we may come back to it again and subsequent months, but set aside these three weeks to dig into the book of Revelation. You heard the passage read, thank you Andrew, it's from chapter 7, the second half of the chapter. Um, If you want to follow along, your Bible, whether it's on a smartphone or you have the text itself, and if you ever want one, we've got extra copies of the Bible back in the back, not smartphones, we have extra copies of the Bible back in the back um, that you can get out in the lobby if you want them. It's a book that I have not jumped into much at all during my uh, tenure here for a variety of reasons. The text itself, the content, can feel a little intimidating because of the grandiosity, I'm not even sure that's a word, the grandiose nature of the language that's used. It can also feel a little intimidating because It's sometimes difficult to look at those symbols or those images and make any sense of them. It's also, from my perspective, causes me a bit of resistance because when people have attempted to make sense of some of those symbols, it has led to interesting conclusions that... um, leave me confused or startled or frustrated or 
frightened or sad or just emotions that as time passed, I'm not sure were all that necessary given those viewpoints. A case in point was um, quite a few years ago when there was a gentleman who, based on having read numerous passages of Scripture, including the book that we're looking at, had concluded that Christ was going to return to this earth, and I believe the date that he gave was September 7, 1976. So that dates me quite a bit, but I remember it very, very well. I was angry, really angry. You'd think maybe I would be angry at the guy who said it because I didn't think he should have said it. I wasn't angry at him really at all. I was angry at God. I was angry at God because this woman I loved and hoped to spend the rest of my life with was on a summer-long ministry team, and they weren't coming back until September 9th of 1976. And pardon me, this is probably more crass than it should be, and certainly not very spiritual, but I wasn't convinced yet that the joys of heaven were going to be better than making out with my girlfriend was... (laughs) (laughs) the long and short of it, so, okay, so that was inappropriate, I'm sorry, that, it was transparent though, give me at least that much, September 7th came and went, September 9th was wonderful, and I'm, I am so sorry, God, this is, bring this back a little bit. So when I look at this book, it stirs up some of those thoughts of what does it mean to look at the symbols, the images, the things that arise out of the pages of the text and to make sense of those things. Let me bring you up to date for those of you that weren't here last week or forgotten everything I said from that last week. That covers about 98% of the people here. So... Last week, we looked at um, the beginnings of this book. It starts off with the author telling us who he is. It's John the Divine. We don't know a whole lot about John the Divine, other than that he was from Judea, um, certainly Jewish in his uh, heritage, um, and seems very familiar with the seven churches that have grown out of this Jewish sect movement that becomes Christianity, the seven churches that are in the area of what we know now as Turkey, but more often known as Asia Minor, these seven churches he's very familiar with, and in this opening chapter, he tells us that he had a vision on the island of Patmos, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 miles from the coastline of the mainland, in the direction of where all those churches are, most likely Um, a political outcast for the things that he had said or done. And the time frame in which he lived, or at least the time frame in which he wrote, most likely was during the reign of the emperor Domitian. We probably need a little more background, a little more of the backstory that sets it up for his writing because it makes a difference, his experiences and Some of it is taken both from what we have in this book as well as other historical documents that help us to understand it a little bit better. But in the text itself, in chapters 2 and 3, John the Divine writes to the seven churches, writes to them very specific admonitions, describes their situation, and gives them a direction to go with what they're facing. Very clear messages to those seven churches. We come to chapter 4 and it says that John is taken up into the heavens and he has this amazing vision and he describes in chapter 4 the creator, the almighty one, sitting on the throne, surrounded by four beasts and 24 elders and describes the look and the description is so similar to the description that Ezekiel has, I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 9, 
and draws on some of that imagery. In fact, there's a lot of the book of Revelation that draws on the prophets of old. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, other passages. Where it doesn't look like it's an exact quote, but the imagery just seems to be taken from the apocalyptic nature of some of those prophets' writings and drawn into what's stated here in this book of Revelation. As we move into chapter 5, which is where we were last week, we have the Almighty holding a scroll with seven seals, and that question is asked, who's worthy to open up the scroll and break the seals? And no one was found at all. And John the Divine begins to cry in this vision that he has. But then some, someone there tells him to turn and look. There's one who is the Lion of Judah, a descendant of David, the one who is worthy, and he turns and he looks and he sees not a lion, but he sees a lamb, a little, tiny, precious lamb, a lamb that looks like it's been slain. And this is the lamb that is standing on the throne in the place of the Almighty, exemplifying the knowledge and power by the eyes and the horns. And it is stated that from this lamb emanates the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And so we have God on the throne And the vision of this one who has laid his life down as the slain lamb, the emblem of victory? That's what we talked about last week. I was asked last week what was in the scroll. Was that just a teaser to get us back next week? Maybe. We're not exactly sure. The scroll, as I mentioned last week, had the notion, at least would relate to some of the people of that time, of scrolls, similar scrolls that had seals on them, sometimes seven seals of a person's property or possessions, like their last will and testament. And so it would be this wonderful symbol of the possessions of the Almighty, God's creation, God's children, as well as all that God has created, who is worthy to open the scroll and acknowledge once again that it all belongs to God. There's none worthy for that, except for the Lamb who was slain. The reclaiming of all that is God's is made possible through the sacrifice of what Christ has done. But another piece of this unfolding scroll is in chapter 6, as each seal is broken, a new listing of events is described. They seem catastrophic, they seem cataclysmic, they seem larger than life. Well, let's pause for a moment and talk about what John has seen, heard, and observed. He's likely writing sometime around 90 CE, 90 years after the birth of Christ. And what's happened is this Roman Empire has grown, expanded. We know that Nero, the emperor, served from about 54 to 68 CE. And his reign was this mixture, some good, some bad, but it got worse and worse And the object, in some ways, of much of his anger, or at least scapegoated, those who were Christians, well, Jews, Jewish Christians. See, that's an interesting thing about this book. It's very Jewish in nature, very Jewish. In fact, the most Gentile piece of all of this is right in the middle of the chapter of what we'll be looking at in a few moments. But he speaks about the 12 tribes. He speaks to the church that is filled with Jews. It's not that he's excluding the Gentiles, but his language comes very clearly from a Judean and the rich heritage that he would have. And the observance that he would have of what was happening to the Jews 
as well as, in particular, this Jewish sect that was becoming known as Christians. And certainly it was beginning to be spread among the Gentiles. Paul began that process. Paul's never mentioned in this book. The language doesn't speak at all like Paul. It certainly doesn't speak like John the Gospel writer either. Paul, the one who believed so clearly that God's intent was that the good news be opened up to the Gentiles around the globe. And there's nothing that speaks against that in this book at all. But it is spoken over and over again about the Jewish perspective of so many things. Nero, in some of the stories that are told, to what authority I'm not sure, but the stories have been told that in some of the darkest moments that he would use Christian, likely Christian Jews, as human torches to light his garden. Horrific. Absolutely horrific. But it wasn't reserved just for Nero. The kinds of things that took place the human lives that were sacrificed for a variety of reasons seems tragic, cataclysmic, unbelievable in every way. At the death of Nero in 68, there was this succession of emperors, four within one year, all of them assassinated, so that that became a position, I'm guessing, that not many people wanted, but nevertheless there was a series of rulers that spanned this time in history. Many of the Jews had begun to stockpile weapons. And somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 66 CE, they began a more overt rebellion against the Roman Empire. They began to fight against this beast that was making life horrific, that it not only violated their faith, but it violated humanity. And they were willing to take up arms against such abuse of power. They were tenacious. There was more fight in them than the Romans ever thought possible. And so in 70 CE, the emperor sent... 60,000 troops to descend on the city of Jerusalem to put the entire rebellion to rest, to destroy the city, and to completely destroy the temple, the centerpiece of their faith practices, the centerpiece of how they worshipped this one God. What had already begun, but then over the next 20 years, what just grew exponentially were the edifices that the Roman Empire built up for the gods of the Roman Empire and as tribute to the emperors themselves. Probably the largest, the most significant of which was right in Pergamum, which is one of the towns to which the letters were written by John the Divine. There on the hill was the temple to Zeus, in all of its glory, having torn down the one singular Jewish temple of sacrifice and erecting all of these others was about all that John could take. That wasn't all that he experienced. The rising of those kinds of um, vicious rulers in 79, August 23rd, I think it was, Mount Vesuvius erupted in southern Italy. If you're looking for what I think is an amazing description of what it's like for a huge volcanic eruption to take place, go to chapter 6, verse 12 of Revelation. It looks symbolic. If you didn't know that's what it was, it sure fits beautifully in the way in which the sky was darkened, the sun disappeared, and it seemed as if the stars fell out of the sky as it unscrolled across the sky. It was in southern Italy, but 
It was said that you could see the billowing smoke as far north as Rome. Tales about it spread throughout the kingdom. These events as they unfold are the kinds of things that John was seeing and experiencing and watching his people put to death. The general of the troops that descended on Jerusalem were guided, the general was Domitian's father. Other troops came led by Domitian's brother. Both of those preceded him in ruling the empire, followed by Domitian, who ruled from 81 through 96, whose reign completed that cycle of deification of the Caesars. John couldn't help but call it out. Couldn't help but speak up about the horrific nature of what was taking place. But why? What was his purpose? Why this book is part of our sacred scriptures? Why in chapter 6 begin to enumerate catastrophic event after catastrophic event Certainly is possible that they relate to events beyond what was taking place. It's almost as if John is saying, I know that it's gotten really bad, and I have to also say to you that it's likely to get worse before it gets better. However, chapter 7, let me pause for a moment and tell you that what you see is not the whole story. The Lamb is the victor. What you see happening can be overwhelming, and it will continue to be overwhelming as long as you fix your eyes on those circumstances. But I'm telling you that the price has been paid by Christ. The reason the beast is so frantic is because he feels like Christ escaped his clutches. He returned to heaven and the beast knows that the beast's time is short because the one who has laid his life down is the one who has not simply declared victory, but is victorious, and all of the heavenlies surround and sing his praise. And that truth is the singular truth that comes through all of Scripture, whether it's told in a gospel biography a letter of Paul, a letter to the church at Corinth, a letter to the person in Timothy, whether it comes through apocalyptic literature, poetry, or things that feel like a novel. If it's sacred scripture, the singular message through all of those is Christ is victorious. The resurrection is true. And the heavenlies declare it. It may be that there are skirmishes that we see and we become subject to those. But not only are they not the end of the story, but that final chapter has already been written and is true now. That's why John writes this. The power of that message for the people to hear and to receive. And the truth is, it's not just a message for them. It's true for us as well. What are the circumstances you face? What are the beasts in your life? Is it inappropriate to take that scripture and begin to apply it to our journey? No, not at all. For all scripture is valuable for teaching and admonition and drawing us into the truth. I think John's call is to say you can do this same thing as well. 
Let's name the seals that feel like they've broken in your life. Now, I know for some of us, it feels self-serving. Almost as if we are saying the universe revolves around me when I speak of my woes. It is if that's the conclusion of your conversation. (laughs) But if we do it in a confessional way, If we do it in a way that moves us from confessing those difficult pieces to acknowledging the Christ that holds those pieces in God's hands, then everything begins to change. I find it difficult because I feel so incredibly blessed to complain about anything. I walk out of the hospital room with Beryl or a conversation with Tim and I think, okay, God, there's no room in my life for moaning about anything where a person like Beryl's life has been a walking miracle pushing past every time anyone said it's impossible. She just smiled and kept walking, literally. The palliative care physician just shook his head and said, I don't even understand the last two years. I'm not sure what I can speak into now. She defies everything I understand. Okay, Lord, where do I have room to complain about anything? And yet, God calls us to be honest, not about somebody else's life, but about our own. And there are things that hurt, that are hard, that are painful. Things that I grieve over and wish were different. Things that feel like beasts in my own life. And to go confessionally before God and say, God, here it is is not to say that my life is more important, but to say it's important enough in God's eyes that God invites me to do that. And it's not just about my own journey. To be taken about the ways in which things affect other people as a result of my own journey. I made reference to a town I had the privilege of going to just south of the Dead Sea, between, pardon me, just north of the Dead Sea, between that and the Sea of Galilee, a community that was flourishing back in what we know as the first century. It was a Roman town, a Roman outpost, and they had built such beautiful buildings, so many artifacts that were preserved, column after column after column of a gymnasium and bathhouse and steam area and town and large worship area and, and looking at the engineering feat that happened to make this possible. One large section, probably a little bit larger than half of this room, had these strange little um, clay and stone, how do you describe it? almost like a conical-shaped pyramid, but flat on the top, next to each other, just one after the other, all the way across, row after row after row after row. And they would heat up in these large furnaces water to hot boiling and pour it into that area, and somehow the clay would hold on to that heat and create steam so that the people could have a steam room after their gymnasium activities. It was really an engineering marvel. It was really incredible. The dirty little secret of that is the lives that were given in order for that to be possible. Those whose lives were viewed as a resource, as a commodity, to make a certain segment of the culture and community have those kinds of luxurious benefits. The labor with no thought given to their state of affairs. The lives given 
to move the enormous stones into place. My question for myself over and over again walking through those places was, Lord, do I participate in any way in that today? Is there any way in which my life takes such advantage of others that I give no thought to what it means to enjoy the things that I enjoy? I want to pause for a second here. I know what it feels like to have statement, statements like that made and all of a sudden my defenses go up. Statements made about the luxuries of our country or um, a particular group of people and all of a sudden I'm supposed to be aware of every infringement on human rights around the globe and I feel overwhelmed and I feel defensive and I don't even know what to say or think. Please don't misread me or others when those statements are made. Because for many, it just arises out of a prayer that says, Oh God, don't let the use of what I receive and how I live somehow spin unknowingly into abuse. Help me to never lose sight of the cost and the price that's paid for things. Help me, Lord, not to be an individual who is unaware of the global nature of humanity. And it certainly is not a statement against prosperity because Scripture speaks over and over again in wonderful ways about shalom that includes prosperity. May you be blessed with all prosperity, but may that never come at a price where someone else is at such a disadvantage that they have to lay down who they are for what I enjoy. God, help me. Help us to not become part of the beast. As John speaks, so it is okay to begin to enumerate my pain, my hurts, my struggles, as well as, God, how I might be at times sliding into a place where I participate in a culture or practice that may do harm to others. And then, confessionally, having said that, help me to see what chapter 7 proclaims. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To receive glory and honor and power, that's out of chapter 5. And then in 7, the angelic hosts begin to sing. But then, so fascinating, in verse 9, it begins to speak about people from every tribe, every nation, every language group gather together as God calls God's children into this place of praise and worship and celebration. I love what someone said one time. This was a great line that was a wonderful reminder to me. He said, Revelation is not so much for interpreting as it is for singing. And so much music comes out of this book. So many passages in Handel's Messiah, so many hymns that arise out of the statements of praise and song that we find here. But what an incredible picture that is depicted of those from every tribe, every nation, every language group. May we see the universal call of the good news and be purveyors of that good news. Feel free to bring before God all that we need to confess. Open up the seals in your life. What are they that have caused such problems in your journey? What does it feel like that's already happened and feels like it's just on the horizon? What might get worse before it gets better? God, here it is. This is what it feels like. Now, Lord, take me once again to the chapter. The chapter where the Lamb is victorious. 
Father, for so many years and so much time, I find myself looking at you through the circumstances of my life. This morning for all of us, God, will you help us to see the circumstances of our lives through you. May you become the lens, the vision through which we see eternity. May you help us to realize that what we touch and see and hear, the temporal of our life is exactly that, temporal. Give us the hope that taps into eternity and let it begin now. That's revelation for us today. Father, our Lord, our King, the Almighty One, our Creator, our Savior, you are the Lamb, the Slain One. You are so worthy. This passage, Lord, says that in that moment, there is no longer any more hunger. There is no longer any more thirst. You provide the light. You become the sun and the moon and the stars of our journey. As I watched this morning, Beryl struggle for each breath. Your promise is there is no longer any struggle for breath because you are our breath of life. You have infused us with your spirit and you breathe into us your spirit. So in you, we place our hope. John's call to the seven churches. Lord, we're just going to add our name to the list and be the eighth. Or the ten thousandth and eighth, or whoever else has claimed, laid claim to that passage. We receive this message today. A message of incredible hope. Both individually and collectively. We are yours, God. Make each one of us a sanctuary fit for your dwelling. Fill us with your spirit. Transport us into the heavenlies, Lord. May the circumstances of our life, however difficult or however great, however painful, however blessed, help us to know that as long as our life is in your hands, the truth is that you reign victorious and we belong to you. With that truth, we hold steady. We lay claim to our inheritance in you. Thank you, Father. You are worthy of our praise, our music, our singing and dancing. You are worthy of our trust, our allegiance, our faithfulness. We are yours, Lord. We praise your name.